Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, one of New Zealand's rising stars, Natalie Christensen, the chief winemaker at Yeelands. Her journey has taken her from classical music to sustainable winemaking. Plus, later on, some Kiwi medal winners from the IWSC to tempt your taste buds. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Natalie Christensen trained as a classical musician with the goal of writing scores for the movies. But wine came calling and a harvest job turned into a vocation, which took her to the Rias Baixas on Spain's northwestern coast and ultimately back to home in New Zealand's South Island, where she is now chief winemaker at Yeelands, a Marlborough institution celebrated for its Sauvignon Blanc and its commitment to sustainability, which has inspired a new look for the wines. As well as overseeing the winemaking, Natalie likes to experiment as well, and her latest project is an Albarino, a grape she fell for when she was working on Galicia's Atlantic coast. Harvest is almost upon us in the southern hemisphere, of course, but she managed to get some time out for a whistle-stop visit to the UK to attend the launch of those newly branded wines, and I was able to catch up with her and welcome her to The Drinking Hour. Thanks, David. It's awesome to um, be talking with you today. Well, it's uh, very nice to be talking to you and in person (laughs) as well. Uh, After lockdowns and the rest, it's uh, been a long time. Let's go back to nearer the beginning, first of all, a bit about uh, how you got into wine. You're an accomplished winemaker, but you're also a classically trained musician. So why was it wine? Well, I had what I what I like to coin my quarter-life crisis. So still do have a love of music and I play very occasionally uh, but back in the day I used to play a lot and I was really interested in being a composer for New Zealand films when I first left high school so I studied a music degree at university but then I sort of decided I really liked the healing properties of music so I thought maybe I would get into music therapy. Uh, I ended up doing a psychology degree as well and I did a paper in industrial organisational psychology along the way and I ended up doing my master's in that. Yeah and so I worked in HR for eight months and it was the pits. It was miserable. So yeah that's when I had my quarter life crisis. I was 25. Hopefully I lived to 100. Left my job. I had a massive student loan. I thought I'd ruined my whole life and my brother was living in Marlborough at the time and he said maybe you just need to go travelling. Why don't you come to Marlborough and work a harvest? I had no idea really what a harvest entailed, uh, but I thought 
that sounds great. So I arrived uh, in Marlborough in 2006 and I did my first harvest at St. Clair then and I loved it. I couldn't believe it was a job and a, a career potential. And when I was studying my master's degree, I'd been a volunteer firefighter. So I was used to steel cap gumboots and pumps and hoses. And I also had a part-time job working in a local wine bar. And so these things I'd kind of been doing along the way, I hadn't really realised, um, had sort of set me up for an exciting and awesome future. My God, that is... <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. Well, to... <laughs> there's a lot to get in. I mean, talk, talk about sort of serendipity and yeah. things happening by yeah. accident. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people I talk to for the drinking hour who sort of fell into what they're doing. But this is, you know, quite a fall, given yeah, uh, a fall. the enormity <laughs> of the, the job you're doing now. So you've always, I guess, into wine, uh, as an adult at least. Yes, I mean, like, where I grew up and... Um... I guess my main introduction into wine was sort of cask wine in the fridge that I used to sneak from my mum. But yeah, it wasn't until I really kind of got into the industry um, and obviously working in that wine bar that I started to really sort of gain knowledge and gain a full appreciation of wine. Yeah, it's um, you come so far so uh, rapidly. What attracted you then to Yeelands? Well, I actually, I had been working in Spain and I'd had some visa issues, so I was home for Christmas. And my visa was taking a while to sort out, so it coincided with the New Zealand harvest. And I was in Marlborough, and Tamara, chief winemaker at the time, contacted me asking me if I'd be interested in being the winemaker, sort of running the night shift. So I, I did that, and I loved it. After being in Spain and not really being able to speak the language, got to Yearlands, I obviously could talk to people. I knew exactly how to sort things out. Um, we had an on-site engineer. It just seemed like a dream working somewhere like that. And Spain is important <laughs> here as well because you were in the Rias Baixas, weren't you? And this, mm. I think, had quite an influence on you. Yeah, so for kind of the 18... I worked in Rias Baixas on and off for about 18 months and I had a permanent job uh, up there working at a winery called La Cana, which is part of the Jorge Odoñez group. And, yeah, my main project was working with Albarino. And it was a variety that, well, I loved working with it. And it's so expressive. It's got beautiful, vibrant acidity. And it has a lot of, not similarities with Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, but in the same breath it does. And what did you kind of pick up there that you would say has sort of influenced your winemaking philosophy back home in Marlborough? Not sure about philosophy, but um, I guess just sort of getting a feel for the the variety and how it performs, but also some techniques on how to manage the high acidity. So it's really common to like pick the fruit and then soak the skins for you know up to even up to twenty four hours to sort of help drop out some of that acidity and get some of the flavour from those skins. So yeah, it was more techniques and yeah. Than... Well, you you've picked up plenty of them. Um, <laughs> I sort of think of your winemaking signature as a, a, a kind of a relatively low intervention mm -hmm. one. And um, uh, we better explain what low intervention is, um, but you're better placed to do that uh, than me as the expert. Um, but um, am I right? Is that is that your kind of ethos? Yeah, most definitely. So I have worked at a few different places and I've had quite a bit of experience in different wineries and... From all those experiences, you begin to know what you definitely need to do and things that you had been doing that you don't necessarily need to do or need to add. 
So my philosophy of winemaking is do kind of the bare minimum, not from a lazy point of view, but uh, just to sort of let the, the wine sort of express itself, not too much tinkering from the winemaker. Yeah, just keep the process as simple as possible and as clean and as sort of focused as possible. And that would be a, broadly a definition of low intervention, would it? Broadly, um, but then there's the whole kind of natural wine movement, which is pretty much no additions, maybe a tiny bit of sulphur at bottling, um, and that's definitely not kind of the wines that we're making at Yellens. Mm. But we have done some natural-style wines, uh, but I wouldn't say that's kind of actually our main sort of body of production. You do like to experiment a bit, though, don't you? I mean, yes. a few years ago, the last time I met you face-to-face, I was tasting State of Flux, mm-hmm. uh, some wines uh, that... Well, again, you're better to describe those than me, but these were experiments effectively, weren't they? Yeah, so um, we do have two wines that we ferment in concrete eggs. So we've got a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay. So um, the juice ferments in the the eggs and then ages on its leaves for around about 11 months. We also made a couple of uh, carbonic wines under that state of flux tier, um, which were our kind of no, no additions, no filtering, no fining, uh, wines. Uh, we did a Carbonic Sauvignon Blanc and also a car- Carbonic Pinot Noir. And just explain for those listening what Carbonic means in sort of simple terms. Uh, simple terms. Uh, so basically it's when you have the full cluster of a, a bunch. So it's not individual berries. It's the full cluster completely intact and they're placed in a fermentation vessel and then that fermentation vessel can be sort of, I guess, charged with CO2 to make it a very um, anaerobic environment. And the fermentation actually starts within the berry, so it's an intracellular fermentation, and you get quite bubblegummy characters, uh, and it's just a very different sort of flavour profile you get by starting the fermentation in that way. Mm, great explanation as yeah. well. Thank you very much. You're Certainly welcome. better than I could have done. <laughs> it might surprise some people, because Yeelands is a brand that we're used to seeing in our major retailers, on the shelves. Um, it might surprise some people that you get to experiment whilst also overseeing a reasonably significant volume wine or or series of wines. Yeah. um, Is it important to you to experiment? Yeah, very important. Uh, I have a, well, I work with a team of, um, there's about five of us in the winemaking team. And I mean, we're all passionate about winemaking. And I think it's important that we, we get freedom to play. But also the fact that we are kind of, I guess, a larger, larger wine company, if we do have an experiment that goes amiss, it doesn't matter, you know, it's a drop in the ocean for us. So we do have, I guess, more freedom than some, you know, with that mm. kind of thing. That's a really good point. I mean, does it go wrong sometimes? Have you yes. ha, have you had any? I mean, I don't know if you want to share them, but have you had any kind of cock-ups? I had one. Um, we had some beautiful fruit from Central Otago, and I wanted to do a very no, no hands-on. So basically put the fruit in a plastic fermenter, sealed the lid, and just left it for about 30 days. And yeah, the pretty much the VA was through the roof and yeah, it was not it was not pretty. And VA is volatile acidity, so that's yes, that kind of nail polish. Yeah, pretty kind much. Of. So I'd made a beautiful batch of 
sort of balsamic vinegar. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh dear. Well. Yeah, but it was only very small, so it's all good. Yeah, and we all learn from our mistakes and, and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, um, tell us about um, uh, if anyone follows you on um, Instagram, then they'll they'll already know a bit about where you work because you're very proud of it and mm-hmm. uh, you live and breathe it. Uh, it's very very beautiful. But for those who haven't seen that, just talk about uh, Yeelands. You know where it is, um, the the environment that you're in. So Yeelands is based in Marlborough, New Zealand and more specifically the Awatere Valley and our vineyard known as the Seaview Vineyard is right on the coast of the Awatere Valley. I don't think I'm biased I, but I, I genuinely feel that it's one of the most scenic vineyards in New Zealand if not the world. Driving up over the hill in the morning uh, I still, my heart still kind of drops and my tummy still just sort of feels funny because you're driving into the sunrise and there's a beautiful expansive vineyard undulating um, slopes and um, sort of laid out before before me and yeah, you look out over the Cook Strait, which is the body of water between the, the North and the South Island of New Zealand. And yeah, every day looks a bit different. Yeah, it's just a hugely scenic site. And we've got a lot of wetlands that we've developed on the property. Uh, we've got beehives, we've got uh, monarch butterflies. We've got a special area of the vineyard known as Butterfly Gully, where we've planted a lot of uh, swan plants and other plants that encourage butterfly life. And yeah, it's just a very beautiful full of life place to be and the wines have just been uh, rebranded quite a big deal for a brand like Yeelands that's so recognizable and that uh, that environment is is very much reflected uh, in the new look isn't it yeah so we've just gone through a new branding for our Yeelands reserve tier and we really we just felt that our old label wasn't really speaking to some of the stuff that well, who we are. So with our new label, we, we did a really fun project where I did some foraging around the winery, around the vineyard in the middle of winter, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to find. Um, but uh, picked flowers and leaves and all sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, we had some photographers who took really sort of close-up photos of those and any sort of wildlife that they saw around around the vineyard. And those images have been laid onto the bottles and... Yeah, so it's very exciting to be able to show the world um, through our wine label some little bits of our home. Do you, as a chief winemaker, get very involved in those kind of um, what some people would think of as kind of corporate sides, uh, like branding and, and so forth? Do you have much of a, uh, an input? Not so much. Like, I don't get too involved in label design, so I was, I was quite happy to be able to be part of this one because it was such an exciting project. But, you know, we have a marketing team, um, so we have our areas which we're specialists in, uh, but sometimes I get called on to, to have a play, which is always fun. And, of course, it's it's what's in the bottle that really matters, and, and uh, we're going to talk more about that. But it it is important, you know, uh, shelf appeal and all the rest, isn't it? Most definitely, yeah. Especially if someone doesn't know what's in the bottle, you sort of first sort of judge it with your your eyes. So an enticing label is definitely a a good place to start. Mm. And Marlborough, sensation maybe 20, 25 years ago now more, uh, when uh, Sauvignon Blanc from Marlborough um, sort of first hit these shores. And, um, you know, it's it's really amazing. If you talk to someone like Oz Clark, who was around at the time, and there was this suddenly there's this new sensation effectively a taste sensation in wine they don't come along that often that dramatically um just what is it about Marlborough that makes Sauvignon Blanc um, so distinctive and different 
I'd have to say, I guess, the climate, uh, the soils. Yeah, we get massive sort of diurnal shift. So we get good ripening during the day with good sunshine hours, but we also drop down to really cool temperatures temperatures at night, which retains that vibrant, fresh acidity. So Marlborough Sauvignon has this beautiful backbone of acidity and freshness, but also ripe tropical fruits and all sorts of fruit flavours coming through. So mm. I think that's the secret weapon to Marlborough. Yeah, and um, there is sort of um, chemical phenolic reactions that are also that you would understand far better than me <laughs> uh, that are actually very significant in in Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc yeah. more so than other wines that's right isn't it yes so there's a um I guess a group of compounds known as volatile thiols so they are the likes of um like grapefruit um passion fruit and they yeah so it's those sort of characters so Sauvignon Blanc is well from Marlborough and some other parts of the world too are very um loaded with these compounds mm. and um, occasionally not from you those can be a little too loaded or in the past at least mm-hmm. I think it's calmed down a bit um, mm-hmm. have, have you uh, seen the kind of style of of wines being made in Marlborough evolve change in the time that you've been working in wine uh, that's an interesting question because I guess I've been working with Marlborough Sauvignon for quite some time because I my first harvest was in Marlborough at St Clair family estate and they're very much a um, sort of specialist in Sauvignon Blanc and sub-regionality of Sauvignon Blanc. And, yeah, stylistically, I think, you know, there's still the core of making traditional, vibrant, fresh, fruity styles of Sauvignon. Yeah, there's and then there's also, like, the oak, the oak sort of styles that people have been making for some time. But, yeah, I guess there's, there's potentially a move to be making some more textural, potentially aromatically restrained styles of Sauvignon Blanc. You seem to have, versus some other Marlborough Sauvignon that I can think of, um, there's an element of, um, of, of of delicacy, of restraint in your wines. Mm-hmm. That's, um, well, I, I hope that's fair. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> deliberate, I assume? It's sort of site-driven, actually. Like, one of the... Um, when I first came to Yearlands and did a, a tasting... I thought I knew what Arbiterio Sauvignon Blanc was about and it wasn't until I did sort of a deep dive into the wines of from Yearlands that I realised I had no idea. I thought Arbiterio Sauvignon was um, tomato stalk and that was the character and that was Arbiterio Sauvignon but no. So I guess from the Seaview Vineyard especially we get this beautiful textural element which is a almost like a salty brininess, um, like a crushed oyster shell or like a chalky tension. And one thing that really struck me tasting the wines were there was kind of a sophistication and elegance, but also like a a subtle power and depth to them. They weren't kind of subtle and wishy-washy. They were sort of, yeah, restrained and elegant, but with a, a good line and power that just sort of went through the palate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's definitely um, a, a, a signature of uh, a number of wines, but 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 certainly yours um, uh, for sure. And of course, it's not just about um, Sauvignon Blanc, but Marlborough is still um, most famous for it. Um, do you and your uh, peers um, in Marlborough ever sort of wake up in the middle of the night and think, "What if this kind of bubble bursts?" I should say, there's no sign of it uh, thus far. In fact, there was a shortage. Uh, last year um but do you ever worry about that we might kind of fall out of love with it as a as a style of wine no it, it's not on my radar yet but it probably is something that should be on the radar but we do have other varietals coming on and sort of other varieties that we play with so 
Yeah, I still think there's an appetite for Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc and it is such a global sensation and I can't, yeah, I, I can't see it evaporating overnight. I think we've got a few years left yet and there's still markets that haven't really seen Marlboro Sauvignon Blanc and there's still so much demand from our existing markets. Yeah, I think you're okay. I think, I think you can okay. sleep. I can sleep definitely for the next 10 years, I yeah, think. Yeah, I think you're fine. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about some of those other great mm-hmm. varieties, though, because as I say, um, uh, I, I love, um, I, I find Pinot from Marlboro uh, really exciting. Um, but then you're also making uh, uh, Veltliner and you're now making Alvarino as well, which is back to the, the Rio Spicious again. So tell us about some of the other uh, varieties beyond Sauvignon that you're excited about. I think the one I'm most excited about is Albarino, and that's not just because I've worked with it before in Spain, but with the whole kind of, I guess, global warming aspect um, in New Zealand, you would have potentially seen recently on the news with the flooding in Auckland, um, we're starting to get a lot more of the tail end of tropical cyclones, and Albarino is a a high acid grape, and it's got really kind of thick skins, and it's relatively disease resistant so I think that's potentially a variety that going forward with these more variable weather patterns that we're seeing could be a robust one to sort of see us through but also I think just our climate really lends itself to Albarino and it's a a nice alternative to Sauvignon Blanc and everyone who seems to try it seems to love it so Mm. and it's a it is a, a word you can say so quite often that can be Something that puts people off when they can't pronounce the varietal. But yeah, Albarino is probably the, the most exciting one. Yeah, and I tasted it last night for the first time, oh, actually. And uh, beautiful acidity. Um, real um, sort of uh, definition there. Uh, there is a proper varietal signature, um, but it's just a little bit different. Yeah, um, I can't really speak to why it's different, but I guess the reason why it's different is because it's from New Zealand and it's from our vineyard. I think in the wine... From what I've seen, so the first this is our first release of the Albarino, and I just wanted to make a very fresh, like it's 100% fermented in stainless steel. I just wanted to see what sort of fruit quality we were going to get and sort of um, the aromatic profile. And yeah, there's almost like a um, a yellow peach, not a yellow peach, a um, yellow kind of skinned plum character to the to the wine, with a sort of a subtle saltiness, um, vibrant acidity. Yeah, it's beautiful, and there's also some sort of white flower kind of floral notes in there too. But going into Harvest 23, I am planning on putting a small portion of the juice down into some old oak barrels, um, potentially encouraging some malolactic fermentation, and doing some leaves stirring just to have some other components for blending and just see if I can layer in some some bits to the wine for V23. Yeah, I think it, it's got a great future um did you decide that it should be planted on 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 the sea view vineyard by the way well there was a new development going on and then um i think peter was interested in planting it so Mm -hmm. yeah and that's peter yearlands yes peter yearlands he of the the name yeah yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, tell us about Grunewaldliner as well because we um, tasted that uh, uh, last night i've tried that one before um again really nice uh, varietal signature um, kind of white peppery kind of character uh, again reasonably compared with 
it's home in Austria, reasonably dialed down, uh, I would say, overall. But uh, tell us about Gruner. And uh, I, I once saw it described as groovy jetliner on, oh. a, on a blackboard <laughs> in, in, um, in uh, somewhere in New Zealand, which I really loved. But mm-hmm. tell us why um, you went with that and, 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 and how it uh, sort of um, shines in, in Marlborough. I wasn't around when it first got planted, um, so I'm not entirely sure of why this, the, the decision was made to plant that variety. Um, but it's incredibly popular with, especially with the UK. Actually, most of our stock comes to the UK. So thank you, UK, mm, for liking Gruner Vatlina <laughs> from New Zealand. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, as with all our whites that we get out of Seaview, um, it's just got that textural element. And I think Gruner, the key thing about Gruner, it's not a, a hugely aromatic variety. It's more about that texture and that sort of structure that you get through the palate, and that's something that we get in spades from the Seaview vineyard. Mm, and it's delicious. Mm. Um, let's talk about Pinot Noir as well, because, as I said, um, I was, you know, I remember the first time I tried a Pinot Noir from uh, Marlborough, and it was after I'd already tried, you know, Marsenborough and Otago. It was, a, at the time, a relative newbie, I think. But um, I was just so excited. Um, tell us about uh, Pinot Noir and, and its sort of profile and, and how it, um, uh, it sort of manifests itself in, in, uh, in, in Marlborough. It can be quite varied. So um, Pinot Noir definitely had the sub-regions, obviously, within Marlborough. So in the southern valleys, it's mostly clay soils. And, yeah, the, the wines from there tend to have quite a plush um, power and sort of silky tannin structure. Um, and the wines, or well, the Pinot Noir from the Aotearoa, can be quite layered in aromatics. There can be almost a herbal element, um, sort of spicy notes coming through. Um, yeah, dark fruits, bramble... Yes, it really depends sort of what subregion you're you're purchasing from. Uh, but yeah, it's varied and it's exciting. Uh, I think in the early days, um, potentially Marlborough Pinot got a bit of a bad rap because people sort of said, oh, you know, Marlborough's just making Pinot Noir like Sauvignon Blanc. And Pinot Noir is definitely not a variety that you can make like Sauvignon Blanc. Pinot Noir has to be very, very low cropping. Um, there's a lot of manipul- well, a lot of work you need to do in the vineyard to get it right. It can be a very fickle, difficult variety to get where you need it to be. Mm. Yeah, but it's it's doing phenomenally well, isn't it? I Most mean, it, definitely. it's it's, yeah. a, it's another string to Marlborough's bow. Most now, definitely. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, there's some beautiful Pinot Noirs. Yeah, coming out of Marlborough for sure. Yeah. What else excites you um, for the future in terms of grape varieties you might kind of love to work with? Um, in Marlborough or elsewhere, actually, because you may not work in Marlborough, all of your, all of your winemaking life. But um, what, what, what excites you? What, other, what else would you love to work with? Well, we tried to, well, we did plant a bit of Gamay at Seaview, which unfortunately I don't think it was in the right section of the vineyard. Yeah, I would have liked to have worked with Gamay. I would still like to work with Gamay. I've, I find it such a fun, fruity, approachable wine. And I think people, as a general rule, are moving away from big heavy reds and looking for those more fun, drinkable, fresh styles. So you're probably gamay. It's probably mm. something I would really like to. Yeah, I'd love oh. to. I don't know if I can sort of up sticks and go do harvest in Beaujolais, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Well, I don't know. I'm sure that I'm sure they'd have you. Yeah, um, hopefully. Do you, um, it's. Uh, I mean, at Marlborough. Sometimes in the wine uh, trade, you know, amongst some critics, there can be a little bit of a sort of snobbiness around Marlborough. I think because it's popular and therefore popular equals mass market and therefore mm. mass market equals vulgar to some. Mm-hmm. Um, does that irritate you? Yes, it drives me crazy. 
Um, but even I thought it might. <laughs> Um, but even within, I guess, New Zealand, and even with the wine industry within New Zealand, it's almost like a, um, it's almost like an accepted racism towards Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Sometimes, like you'll be at a conference and there'll be winemakers from different regions, and it's just sort of accepted that you can speak about Sauvignon. And yeah, I remember the first time I encountered it was when I was studying, and I was studying in the Hawke's Bay, and one of the lecturers was saying something slightly disparaging about Marlborough, and I was shocked. So I think it's sort of it's up to all of us to sort of set that kind of straight. And Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc has put New Zealand on the map, and Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc supports a lot of the entirety of the New Zealand wine industry, and it's famous for a reason. It's famous because it's good and it's expressive, and just because it's a large portion of what New Zealand produces doesn't mean it's big and ugly. Big can be beautiful as well. And we have some beautiful styles that do really well on the international stage. So, I mean, last year we won um, at the uh, International Wine Challenge, we won the best Sauvignon Blanc in the world for our single block S1, you know, beating other countries. So we brought the, you know, the Sauvignon Trophy back to New Zealand. So I don't think it's something we should be disparaging about. Um, It gives us all great lives and livelihoods, it gives us jobs um, and it supports our economy and our industry. So, mm-hmm. no, I do get upset because we should pay it some respect and we shouldn't rest on our laurels and sort of just think it's always going to be there and, you know. Because wine is, you know... <laughs> is um, that fair enough or is that too much rambling? <laughs> no, I think it's fair enough. I mean, uh, success, uh, you know, breeds envy as well, don't, don't forget, and there's, yeah. there's probably an element of that. But also... Um, it is the the story of Marlborough is pretty extraordinary because um, I mean the first Sauvignon was um, I mean Fable has it it was planted upside down or something yeah, but I, I don't that's, know if that's yeah. true is no, it, it true? is true it's okay. definitely true no um, an ex boyfriend I had um, his family were sort of some of the pioneers in in Marlborough and planting a lot of vineyards and um, having like going for dinner and listening to stories around their dinner table that was most definitely those stories are true. Right, it's extraordinary (laughs) uh, when you consider how successful it is now. But, you know, um, let's say 40 years ago, Marlborough was basically full of sheep, wasn't it? Yeah, sheep. Or cows. Maybe it was cows, maybe both. Yeah, both. It was very much sort of a farming town, um, lots of market gardens, most definitely. Yeah, and and now wine is a really sort of crucial part of the New Zealand economy, but absolutely the Marlborough economy, isn't it? Yeah, Marlborough is, it's pretty mono-industry almost, Mm. and it's sort of wine and industries that are supporting the wine industry or businesses mm. that are supporting the wine industry. Yeah. Mono industry but um, if you have your way not monoculture because yes, you, you're course. quite yeah. um, you, you are um, you, you do live and breathe the kind of sustainability message don't you it's a big thing I mean New Zealand wine pretty much every winery in New Zealand bar a very small handful are sustainable certified it's it's, it's, it's the most extraordinary success uh, I think partly down to New Zealand wine growers just being very you know admirably militant about it but why is it important and what do you do on sustainability to try and kind of um, uh, keep keep the game up yeah I guess so like the um, sustainable wine growing New Zealand most producers are certified in that and there's sort of sort of a baseline of what you need to do to achieve that but then there's wineries going sort of above and beyond that so I mean the likes of Yellens we are um, carbon zero certified and uh, we go through an audit process every year and basically we're on a, a journey to get to carbon positive. Yeah, some of the things that we've got going on, we've just launched a 30-year biodiversity plan which sees us plant over a million native trees on the on the property. Uh, we're restoring a, a natural or a waterway that 
used to be there, so we've been working on a project with that. And when we first opened the winery, we had the, the largest solar panel array in New Zealand, and then we got pipped, but now we're about to pip someone out. So, yeah, we're about to put another big load in. Yeah, it's just for us, it's just constantly kind of monitoring and figuring out how we can how we can lighten the load on the planet and yeah and I think that's I think everyone's doing that these days and I think it's important that we've got a commitment to it yeah you're arguably doing it more than most um but uh I mean it it, it might sound like a really stupid question but uh, uh why is it important well I guess it's global warming it's guess it's protecting what we can and what we've got left I know that there's so much damage that's already been done and it's probably going to be actually very difficult to sort of stop that that cycle and um, who knows where we're heading, but we need to do whatever we can while we're still here and while we've still got a planet to work with. Mm. Yeah. And, and talking of, um, you know, uh, doing the right thing, um, you're a prominent woman boss winemaker. <laughs> uh, there are quite a lot of women winemakers I can think of in New Zealand kind of off the top of my head, actually. Mm. I don't know what the sort of male to female sort of ratio is. I'm not sure anyone's even worked that out. But um, how is, important is it to you uh, to kind of encourage women into to winemaking? Is there more that still needs to be done, do you think? I mean, I started in the New Zealand industry, oh, must be about 17 years ago. And to be honest, I didn't even realise that winemaking was a male-dominated industry because there were so many female winemakers around me like Jules Taylor, um, Jane Hunter, you know there's it just seemed normal and it wasn't really until I learned a bit more about the industry and started traveling that I realized it's not normal but I think now today you know people have there's been lots of strong women who have paved the way and yeah even before I got in the industry they'd sort of paved the way so it's not really a it's not as much of a thing these days um yeah. You you haven't encountered kind of sexist barriers then in your um, life making wine no not especially if anything it sort of played into my like my favor like especially even my time in Spain yeah people are quite supportive of it because you're such a a strange thing that Mm. yeah people were supportive no I've no I have never found it to be a barrier for myself personally yeah and actually the Rias Baixas have um, probably more prominent female winemakers historically than most other parts of mm. of Europe as well I, I suspect so um, well that that's good to know um, as I mentioned earlier you kind of um, if um, if you follow your social media profile which I recommend people do um, then uh, you you kind of live and breathe uh, the job and you live and breathe your surroundings um, do you think you'll ever leave I don't have any immediate plans to leave at all, uh, but you never know what life might throw at you or what might. I like taking opportunities when they come up, so and I like an adventure. But I've been very happy in Marlborough and my time in Marlborough, and I do love Marlborough. So, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. And, and how do you relax when you're not making wine? I think actually, I, uh, anyone who follows you will probably know the answer to this. I suspect, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, what do you like to do when you're not in the winery? If I can get some time off, I really like hiking around New Zealand. Um, I like going to the beach. I pretty much just like getting out into nature. Mm. Yeah. New Zealand's not really known. Well, Marlborough's definitely not known for its history and sort of buildings and architecture and that sort of thing. It's, yeah, more the beautiful surroundings. 
Yeah, well, you're not going to get a beach in Beaujolais, I'm afraid, oh, if you end up there. It. But uh, <laughs> you get some lovely wine. Yeah. Talking of which, um, we always ask our guests what their desert island wine would be. I mean, it could be a desert island drink, so it could be a gin and tonic, but I suspect oh. it's going to be wine, I imagine. But what would your, if you're stuck on a desert island smaller than the South Island, um, then uh, what would your, uh, your desert island uh, choice oh. be? Difficult question, I know. Well, it can be a difficult question, um, but... Probably something out of a magnum because I'd want quite a bit of it. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a fresh sort of bright champagne, just because you want to be celebrating. And we're well, not celebrating, but if you're sitting on a, a beach somewhere beautiful and you could be commiserating or celebrating, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would lift the spirits as yes, well. Yes, it wouldn't would. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, final question of uh, of your own wines. Um, here's yeah. If, if if you got stuck on the island with your own portfolio, mm-hmm. um, which bottle would you uh, reach for a bit of a curveball list. But. Well, no, probably the like the new re- new release Albarino. Yeah, I've got good it. choice. Yeah. Good choice. It's delicious. Natalie, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, you you always in, manage to inspire. So, um, um, thanks so much for joining us on the Drinking Hour today. Thanks very much for having me. Natalie Christensen, Chief Winemaker at Yeelands in Marlborough, talking to me a couple of weeks ago as she attended the launch of the new Yeelands brand. Uh, so look out for that on the shelves and look out for that uh, delicious Albarino too. It's uh, highly recommended. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. So we round off as ever with a selection of medal winners from the IWSC in 2022. And for obvious reasons, New Zealand is our focus this time. I was fortunate enough to be on the judging panels for New Zealand last summer. So here are some medal winners from that process. And let's kick off in Marlborough with Yeelands Reserve Sauvignon Blanc 2021, one of Natalie's wines, obviously, uh, the flagship wine, uh, I would say, uh, now sporting a new brand. Um, It won a silver medal with 90 points. Here's the tasting note, beautifully fresh with the crisp, refreshing flavours of plump gooseberries and sweet, tangy nettles. An enjoyably elegant wine with a delightfully long, vibrant finish. And here's another from uh, Natalie's stable, uh, Yeelan's Baby Doll, Sauvignon Blanc 2021. It scooped a silver medal too. Uh, this uh, tasted by uh, Dercio Viana Jr. MW, who was in charge, um, Isabel, Master Sommelier, uh, me, and also uh, Andrea Altavilla, a leading uh, Italian sommelier. Uh, we said this. Bright mineral aromas lend freshness to the green and zesty character. Flavours of ripe apple and asparagus add complexity and depth to the palate. Vibrant with mouth-watering acidity. Well, uh, as she mentioned earlier on, Natalie worked her first harvest at St. Clair. So let's give a mention to a silver medal winning wine from that uh, great name. St. Clair Family Estates Sauvignon Blanc 2021. I was on the panel for this one too, uh, lucky me. Uh, The tasting note goes like this. A well-crafted wine with great appeal, lovely delineation of tropical fruits with good balance on the palate and a long Moorish finish. 
And uh, she and I were talking earlier on about the success of Pinot Noir uh, right across New Zealand, to be honest, uh, but specifically there, um, the uh, style emerging from uh, Marlborough. And after I met her for the interview, we enjoyed a, a delicious uh, lunch um, at uh, Apricity in Mayfair. Uh, Chantel Nicholson, the uh, chef uh, proprietor there, fantastic place um, if you haven't been yet. And we enjoyed a delicious Yulin's Pinot with lunch. Uh, here is a, a gold medal winner from uh, 2022 that really proves the point about Pinot uh, from another of those uh, great names. Uh, you'll recognise this one, I suspect. The Ned Pinot Noir 2020 uh, from Marlborough. It won 95 points, a gold medal. Uh, same panel again, including me. Uh, we said this, a refined example with extraordinary concentration, layered with raspberry, umami and herbal notes. This has wonderful complexity and a long, sweet, spiced finish. Tannins and acidity are masterfully balanced. Uh, finally, let's uh, hop across the uh, Cook Straits to the North Island, to Hawke's Bay, up on the uh, North eastern coast and another gold medal winner church road grand reserve syrah 2019 one of three goals that church road uh, won in 2022 uh, syrah very much the underrated star i think of new zealand wine counting maybe for only a percentage of plantings but uh, punching well above its weight uh, the tasting note delectably stylish with a divine velvety texture and the superb flavors of juicy black cherries soft plum succulent licorice black pepper and a lingering kiss of oak the finish is smooth and gorgeously long with a delightfully sticky twist and that twist is it for another edition of The Drinking Hour, the first of Series 9. Uh, we are rocketing towards our 100th episode uh, very shortly. Uh, my thanks to the wonderful Natalie Christensen. Thanks to you for listening as well. The next episode has the inspiring story of two university mates whose dream to revolutionise cocktails in a can created the fastest growing ready-to-drink brand in Britain. Uh, plus, Freddie Bulmer is back and he's talking New Zealand after his recent buying visit there, uh, which no doubt includes uh, Marlborough. Uh, do join us for that. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And if you'd like to follow me, uh, you'd uh, be very welcome. I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. For now, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.